Father, we uh, give thanks to you. Uh, you actually are the way maker, the miracle worker. You are the one. Uh, you demonstrated this throughout the history of, of creating and then sustaining and providing for your people that you are a miracle worker. You do things uh, to care for us, frankly, that we are even unaware of, uh, working behind the scenes, orchestrating circumstances, events uh, that are for our good. Would you again teach us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, we, we kind of, uh, we're going to take a kind of a quick trip traveling with the people of Israel towards the promised land as they leave Egypt. Um, we need to understand, or at least it's a little bit helpful uh, for the, the sake of context, uh, just how short this trip should have been. The people of Israel, uh, they've been in Egypt, they're headed to Canaan. God has come to them and come to bring them out of Egypt and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so it looks like uh, there's a quick trip ahead to the promised land. The only thing is to get there, they've, they've got to traverse some part of the Sinai Peninsula, uh, which is not real pleasant. The Sinai Peninsula was and even still is today a rather uh, sparsely populated desert area. That's what the Sinai Peninsula is. Wasn't particularly attractive, wasn't a place that people looked forward to traveling through. But to get to the promised land, you had to travel through some part of the Sinai Peninsula. The distance from Egypt up to the promised land, if you just took the most direct route, was somewhere around 200 miles. Um, many would have known about that route, although because the uh, Israelites were slaves, they didn't do a lot of traveling, not many of them anyway, uh, but they would have known about this route. Uh, in those days, there was a road that pretty much uh, was, a, uh, as I said, a direct route from Egypt uh, through Sinai and up into Canaan. It was called the Way of the Philistines. It actually had that name given to it, and it went right along the coast there, uh, the west coast. It, it passed through several Philistine cities. Isaiah refers to this, uh, this road. He gives it a different name in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. He calls it the Way of the Sea, again, because it is right along the Mediterranean coast. Uh, and anyone thinking, okay, we're going to make this trip from Egypt uh, quickly up to the promised land would be thinking that that's the route we're going to take. And for this group of people, uh, because it was so large, many speculate well over a million people, it's going to take them a good month or so to travel this, maybe even a little longer, uh, but not a whole lot longer than that. But uh, we run into something in Exodus 13, which is a little bit of a surprise to us. This is what we read. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. Though that was shorter, for God said, if they face war, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. This is what God knows about his children. <laughs> you know, gosh, if they get the least bit discouraged, you know, if this becomes difficult, uh, if they encounter um, uh, people who oppose them, they may turn around and head right back to Egypt. This is, uh, there's a proverb about this, something about a dog returning to its vomit, I think, just to give you that mental image. Hold that in your mind as we uh, go through some text this morning. Now, you know, th this road, the, the Philistine, uh, the way of the Philistines, uh, it was well-traveled, heavily traveled. It was strategic to Egypt. Uh, and uh, as you uh, move north, of course, the name indicates that you, you contact the Philistines, Philistine cities, in fact. These were city-states. 
they each had their own military garrison and troops with which to protect themselves. And God, knowing the hearts of his people, that at this point they're easily frightened. Uh, they're certainly not full of faith. And uh, so he knew that if they ran into very much opposition, they might well turn back. And so God in his wise providence, and remember, God is always using his wise providence in your life and mine, just like he was in the lives of the Israelites. So in his wise providence, he knows I'm not going to take them that way. Now, um, there is another way that they could have taken. Uh, This is kind of Oh, about halfway down the Sinai Peninsula. It's a way that goes basically east-west. It just cuts across the peninsula. It was very doable, but God didn't take them that way either. God took them on a third way. This is a, a route that's almost directly south through the Sinai Peninsula. And when God led his people across the, the Red Sea and they start on their journey, this is the way they took. It had a name too. It's called the Way of the Wilderness. The Way of the Wilderness. And it went uh, down the western edge of the Sinai Peninsula, uh, all the way almost to the, what we perceive to be the traditional side of where Mount Sinai is, which is kind of down near the southern tip of the uh, Sinai Peninsula. Nobody knows exactly where Mount Sinai is. A lot of speculation today. Is there's some documentaries you can watch where different individuals are absolutely certain they found the exact location of Mount Sinai, and those are interesting to watch. Uh, But nobody has definitively determined the exact location of Mount Sinai. Um, But that's where the Israelites were headed, somewhere to the southern tip of Mount Sinai. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, when they get there, what's interesting to me is they they stay there for a little over a year. It's not a quick visit to Mount Sinai. They spend quite a bit of time there. And, uh, of course, when they left Egypt, they'd been promised this land flowing with milk and honey. So they, they want to get to the promised land as quickly as possible. But uh, God has other things in mind, as God often does. And we have seen this as almost a theme it's becoming. Uh, God wanted to teach them some things. And another thing that's true about teaching anyone anything is that it takes time. Uh, sometimes it takes a lot of time. And uh, we also discovered last week that God is not ever really in a hurry. Uh, he's got his own timeline. It's almost never our timeline. And that is the case uh, in this part of our story this morning. Uh, we're going to see later on that God actually takes some 40 years for his people to journey uh, in the wilderness together. So it's anything but a short trip. And all during this time, the Israelites are basically like us. Um, they, they want to get there fast. But as I've said, God's primary concern is not speed. Uh, I remember years and years ago when our kids were little and we would take a summer family vacation, uh, we would always drive to Ontario, Canada. And that was a 33-hour drive each way in the family van. You remember the good old family vans. And we would load it up with snacks and games and books and sleeping bags and their pillows. And, and uh, this was the good old days back when you, you didn't have to put kid into restraining devices, you know, called car seats. And our, our kids would move around during this trip. Thank God we, we never uh, had an accident, never ran into anything. Uh, we would usually start the trip at night to get as much of it over as we could while the kids were asleep. And, um, but always in the morning, it was the same set of questions. You know, how much longer dad was a question the kids would ask. Uh, Another question, you know, are we there yet? Those, that set of questions. And as parents, man, we look forward to the day when our children would grow up and they would become mature adults 
and uh, not ask those kinds of stupid questions, right? Uh, but then it dawned on us eventually that that day was never going to come, not for any of us actually, uh, because even as adults, we say things like, you know, God, could you give me a job please now, you know, or God, uh, could you give me a house please now, or God, could you give me a spouse please now, or God, could you fix my spouse please now, or God, could you give me children now, or God, would you fix my children now? And uh, although these are adult questions, they're not very much different than are we there yet? Or how much longer, God? How much longer? And this is what God knew back then, still knows, knows about them, knows about us. God knew that where they were going or where he was going to take his people, it it was not nearly as important as the kind of people they become in the process of getting there. That's the really big deal. And uh, he knew that having a land flowing with milk and honey was not nearly as important as having a heart full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and so on. In other words, the fruits of the Holy Spirit developing a character that reflects the character of Jesus, of God himself. And so God kept his people in the wilderness because he had these things he wanted them to learn. And the wilderness can be, often is actually, a really good place to learn lessons like that. People are often more likely to pay closer attention to God. Uh, In Exodus, the wilderness chapters, uh, there are several themes that develop, and we're already seeing some of these. We're going to see another little element of that added this morning. In Exodus chapter 15, the Israelites have just been delivered from Pharaoh and his army, right? They've crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. God has miraculously, again, stress that, miraculously rescued them. And here's what happens. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. That's a problem. That's a real uh, practical problem. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. And that is why the place is called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now, when we read this story, I'm assuming you would respond to it much like I do. Because when I read it, you know, I'm thinking, wow, okay, well, God just delivered these guys from Egypt. The ten plagues that he brought to bear on the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. He drowned Pharaoh's army. You would think, you know, their trust level is going to be at an all-time high, right? That right now, even if tested, they're probably going to respond really well. But that's not the case. That God has been leading them, we're told, just three days. Just three days. And already God's children are whining in the backseat of the van. That's what's going on here. Now again, uh, and we're gonna, this, this is a pattern. We're going to see God uh, miraculously provide for his children. Uh, God tells Moses to throw a piece of wood in the water. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> over the years, there were even times in the church where people want to know just exactly what kind of wood are we talking about? I mean, what is it that, you know, takes uh, water that's undrinkable and makes it drink? That, that's not the point. <laughs> the, the point is God miraculously uh, cleanses, cleans, purifies this water for his people. And so now think about it. They've got freedom from Egypt. 
They've got God's daily guidance and presence with them, the pillar of fire, uh, the pillar of cloud, and they've got supernaturally purified water, okay? And so now they're going to be happy. They're going to be content. We're into chapter 16, verse 1, and we read this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. <laughs> this is classic. It really is. Um, it amazes me how they misremember in this instance. In Egypt, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, they say. Really? Is that what you were doing in Egypt? Is that, is that how you recall it? Is that what slavery is like? You sat around fondue pots all day long. Is that why you cried out to God for deliverance? Is that why you were so desperate? I, I think they may have forgotten the truth. If we go back to Exodus chapter 1, this is what we read there. It says, Pharaoh made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. That's the truth. That's what their situation had actually been like. But they, are, they become discontent in the present, and so they misremember the past. And discontentment will do that to you. It will, it will often distort our perspective. We begin to exaggerate how bad our condition is, uh, how good it used to be, we think, and how good things are for others. And that's sadly simply fallen human nature. That's what's going on here. Uh, if we keep reading, we read this. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Remember, that's an ongoing thing we keep encountering. Remember, one of the things God wanted his people to remember and to realize through the plagues was that he is the Lord. Just like he wanted the Egyptians to know and understand that he is the Lord. Well, they keep forgetting that he is the Lord, meaning he's in control. Uh, he's got all of this. He's working a plan. We simply need to trust him. But now we are told that in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Seeing the glory of the Lord is remembering that he is the Lord. It's the same thing, you see. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said. You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. 
And then Moses told Aaron, say to the Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. I don't know what that would have looked like, but you know, someday maybe, right? We'll get to, they saw the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat in the morning, you will be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Understand, this promise that God is making right here is stupid. Where are the people of Israel? They're in the wilderness for crying out loud. How many of them are are there? Well, I don't know, a million plus. A lot of them in the wilderness. God is promising to bring them bread I'm sorry, there's no bread in the wilderness. And God is promising to bring them meat. And I'm sorry, while there's some meat, I'm sure there was some conies, some rabbits, or I don't know, something jumping around, but probably not enough of it to feed a million people. So this promise that God is making is on the face of it quite stupid. How is God going to keep this promise? And I don't know if you noticed when we read that text together, uh, there's one word that just kept repeating itself over and over. Did anybody pick it up? Grumbling, 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 and grumbling. And uh, we're told over six times that the Lord heard their grumbling. Now, this is me again. When I read these stories, one of the things that jumps out at me, I'm thinking, God's going to get them. I mean, I'd be sick and tired of this. I would do something about it just like pulling the van over. And I did it a few times and I got out and I went to the side door and I opened it and with red face and bulging veins, I'm like, you kids, you know. I'm thinking that's what God's gonna do. That's what God ought to do. He ought to just let him have it. Grumbling, 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 and more grumbling. But to my surprise, and really it blesses me to read that God is instead very gracious and patient. (laughs) He just keeps providing and frankly, he keeps forgiving. Look in verse 13, it says uh, that, this is chapter 16, verse 13, it says that evening quail, where did quail come from out of there? Quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp and when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. So here's the manna thing. Now this name, what is it, actually becomes an inside joke. Many of you know this. The Hebrew word for manna, what does manna mean? It means what is it? So they're eating, what is it? Uh, manna or what is it? They eat it in the morning, they eat it at noon, and they, they eat it at night. Verse 14 says that when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost appear. So what is manna like? Frosted flakes, there you go. <laughs> now here's the thing. What, what is God up to here? I mean, really, he made a promise that was foolish on the surface of it because nobody can keep that promise. But, of course, God can and does. 
We're learning something about God. He can make incredible promises and he can actually keep them. And actually that's a theme, isn't it, in the Old Testament? That he does make promises that seem impossible uh, to be faithful to, but he is faithful to them. What is God up to? What is he trying to teach his people? Moses comments on this many decades later in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse uh, 3 and 4. He says this, Moses says, he humbled you. You see, he didn't tell the Israelites how to provide their own food. He didn't say, well, if you just go hunt over that ridge, you'll find enough meat to feed a million people. No, he humbled them. You see, there's nothing you can do to provide for yourself. There's nothing you can do to put meat on the table. There's nothing you can do to provide your daily bread. There's nothing you can do. So he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. You know, when we're hungering, we never stopped and think that maybe God is actually wanting me to hunger for the moment because there's something he wants to teach me. <laughs> I never think that. I just think, I'm hungry. Come on, God, feed me, you know. But God humbled them, causing them to hunger. And then he says, feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Those are familiar words. Yeah. I think Jesus might have repeated that. Here, here's the key. The manna thing, understand, the whole appearance of manna or quail or any of this, it's all really uh, about trust. Taking God at his word. You see, God had promised that he would care for them, uh, that he would provide for them. And the ever-present question in the wilderness for 40 plus years was, will God do what he promised? Will he provide for us today? And oh yeah, will he provide for us tomorrow? Can I take this God at his word? He said he would uh, do these things. Can I believe him? Can I trust him? And again and again and again, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, in the wilderness, God demonstrates his faithfulness to his people. And that's the way it worked in the desert, in the wilderness. God was in effect constantly saying to his people, I will take care of you. I'm all you need. Trust me today for what you need today. That's the message of the story of God's interacting with his people. Now, this was further emphasized in the gathering of manna. Uh, there was an important rule about manna gathering. This is chapter 17. It says, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Now, if we'd stop right there, that would be good. But unfortunately, it goes on to say, then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, however, some of them paid no attention to Moses i.e. God, because Moses was delivering the message of God. And they kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. So there's a, there's a kind of a manna gathering principle going on here. And that is simply this, gather just enough for one day. Take it one day at a time. God will provide for you 
uh, one day at a time. So trust God for this day, for right now, for what I need today to get through today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Some people, though, got anxious. They got greedy. Uh, Maybe they thought, you know, I don't want to have to gather tomorrow. I'll just gather enough for two days. Or maybe they thought, what if it shows up and there's not as much of it tomorrow and and I, I can't gather the same amount. So I'll just, I'll take a little extra. Maybe some were afraid like that. Some thought they'd beat the system or be real clever. But what God gave them when they acted that way was maggots. He gave them maggots. And quite honestly, when we don't listen to God and take God's word for what it is and trust in it, God will always give us maggots. Moral maggots. (laughs) You know, what your behavior, if you think that's going to make you happy, but that flies in the face of the word of God, guarantee you that's going to lead you down the trail to moral maggots. It's not going to work eventually. It's just not. And God gives us, you know, emotional maggots. It's not going to work emotionally. Spiritual maggots, it's not going to work spiritually because you are not trusting in and listening to the word of God. My, how I wish I would learn this lesson. I'm 66 years old and I, I know this lesson. I'm teaching this lesson to you. Do you know who needs to learn this lesson? Me. There's something so broken in me that I have a really hard time learning this lesson. God says, I want you to live your life trusting me one day at a time. I want you to learn to trust me just for today, Dwayne, just for today. Just do what I tell you today. And friends, this is so important because if you start worrying about tomorrow, I can't trust God. I got to take care of myself. I got to do something for myself. If that's the way you're going to live your life, well, why stop with just worrying about tomorrow? What about the day after tomorrow? Why not worry about the weeks and the months and the years ahead? Why not worry your whole life long? God says, you don't have to do that. You shouldn't do that. I will take care of you. But but you're going to have to trust me. Each day, every day, one day at a time. (laughs) Now, as you know, Jesus was deeply influenced by this teaching. Remember when he taught uh, his followers to pray, what kind of bread did he tell them to pray for? Daily bread. Not a year's supply, but daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. That's the same thing, manna thing. That's a manna thing going on right there. In fact, Jesus said this. Now, I I couldn't think how best to do this. I know you don't want to do this, but you look sleepy to me. So I'm going to ask you all to stand, and we're going to read a passage. This is Jesus speaking together. You know, in in, uh, worship, uh, well, look at you, boy. You're you're excited. You're excited. You're getting over it. You know, In worship services, often a part of the liturgy was to ask the people of God to stand and read a passage of Scripture. So we're going to have these on the screen, and we're going to read together the words of Jesus to his disciples, which that's us this morning. So let's read together. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. 
Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen? Amen. Be seated. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, God, please meet my needs today. I'm not asking for guarantees about tomorrow. I'm not asking for answers to questions that I'm not being asked just yet. I'm not asking for the ability to cross a bridge I haven't even come to yet. God, would you please just take care of my needs today? Give me manna. Give me mercy. Give me grace sufficient for today. You know, it's been a humbling thing for me to have to think about this uh, this week. <laughs> because I do what the Israelites did. I worry, I grumble, uh, I respond out of discontentment with what I have. And here's what's humbling about that. Usually when I grumble, it's not about altruistic issues for me. I don't grumble because I want to see justice in the world. Or I, I don't grumble because I want to see poverty erased. I don't grumble because I want freedom and equality for all people. When I grumble, it's always just about me. I'm worrying about my own little agenda. Or I'm worrying about how some project of mine is going or not going. Or I'm worrying about what somebody thinks about me. Or I'm worrying about my future. What, what is my future going to look like? Is it going to work out the way I want it to work out? Or I'm worried about my circumstances and how difficult or unfair I think they are. Point being, worry, grumbling, discontent, all those things are always about me. Not you, me. And I'll bet I'm not the only one. Anybody here worry or grumble besides me? Now, here's our challenge, yours and mine. And that is to learn to live with this daily bread or manna principle, if you want to call it that. I think Dallas Willard, I, long ago, I, I, I think I read something by Dallas Willard where I picked up the manna principle was the way he labeled this. Um, and the manna principle, uh, it's simply to see that when we grumble or complain against God or are discontent with him or worrying, we are simply not trusting 
God. We are not considering who God is. We are not believing that he loves us, that he will be faithful, that he will provide, that he is all wise. And this, of course, is not a a new or old problem. It's a constant problem for God's fallen children, for people in general. It's a constant problem. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he had in mind this Exodus story that we're looking at. And he said, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, the coming of Jesus. You see, The fact of the matter is you and I will be tempted this week to worry, (laughs) to grumble, to complain, whether about our our future, our finances, our children, uh, our friends, our health, our job or marital status, you name it. But here's the deal. In those moments when they come, what we really need to do is stop and remember, reflect on stories like we're reading right now, for example. You know, a lot of the Christian life is just about that. It's about remembering. That's a good bit of just what worship is. It's just about remembering. Remembering that how God has worked in the past, he still works in the present. He was faithful then, he's faithful now. He was good then, he's good now. He provided then, he provides now. God works in mysterious ways just as he did then. So he does now. And so when we are tempted to worry or grumble or complain or find ourselves being discontent, instead of living in that, we turn from that. That's called repentance. And we say, God, God, I'm sorry. Would you just give me manna for today, God? Get me focused on today. Get me focused on who you are and how you provide just today, Lord. Give me enough wisdom or patience or courage or love or strength to handle today. And as best I can, God, I will trust you that when I wake up in the morning, you will still be there and you will help me then face tomorrow. So you see, we we don't need to collect more today than we actually or really need. We just need to trust God for today. And do you understand the extent to which joy and peace and patience depend on learning and living by this one simple principle? You see, the manna principle, the daily bread principle, living one day at a time, trusting in and believing in God's word and what God says and in what God does and in who God is. You see, we really can live in confidence with God, in partnership with God, if we're willing to learn and practice this one thing. And it does take deliberate practice and repentance and practice and repentance and practice and repentance. That's the pattern. Yeah. You see, worry and discontent have a real sinful hold on us. And not just us today, all of God's children and every time. Worry and discontent are serious problems. 
It started in the garden when our ancestors, Adam and Eve, decided not to believe God, not to trust in God, not to listen to his word, the words he had spoken to Adam. And they decided they knew better how to take care of themselves than God did, right? And that was when worry entered into the human condition, right then, right there. You remember what happened? Right away, they were worried about being naked. And so they provided for themselves some really lovely leaf configurations, and right away, you remember, they worried about having to meet God in the garden. So as what did they do? They hid. You remember that. And they worried about their children. And they worried about putting meat or food on the table. They worried about where bread was going to come from. They worried about who was their friend and who was not. And, you know, ever since Adam and Eve made that mistake in the garden, mankind has been worrying relentlessly. And when the temptation to worry comes our way, friends, and man, it comes on so many different fronts. Worrying about food, clothing, shelter, family, kids, health, and as you get older, it's just dying. <laughs> you know, my, my health and dying. When am I going to die, God? You know, when's that day coming? And what's that going to be like? And how am I going to handle that? And but when that kind of stuff comes our way and enters our mind, enters our heart, we need to go back to God and say, God, forgive me. Would you just give me manna for today? What, what I need today to have the right perspective, to be able to trust you, to hold on to you. Keep in mind, too, that this, this all kinds of, it sounds like a principle, but in fact, you do understand that manna is simply Jesus personified, right? So, or I said that wrong, but Jesus is, man, is manna personified. That, that's what manna is. The whole manna story is God being present and providing for them. You know, the apostle John picks up on this in his gospel, um, more so than any of the other gospels. Uh, the apostle John says, for the bread of God, this is Jesus speaking, the, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Oh, well, gee, who's that? And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. You see, Jesus is manna personified. That's who he is. That's what he is. Jesus sustains us physically. Don't think he doesn't. He gives us our food and drink. Jesus sustains us spiritually. Don't think he doesn't. He is eternal life. Jesus is our manna or our daily bread, spiritually speaking. Jesus is the solution to anything we want to worry about. And I mean that. That sounds trite. I know. It sounds too simple. I know. But it is true. Any, any situation, any circumstance, any difficulty, any need you have, the only right way to process that need is in light of Jesus. To talk to him, to trust in him, to believe in him, and to know that he's going to provide for you. Maybe to help yourself, I suggested this uh, once upon a time. You know, if you struggle in this area... Get yourself a sticky note. I don't know, write something on it that'll remind you about what we're talking about today. 
uh, write on it, Jesus is manna personified, or write on it, manna, or write on it, daily bread. Something that when you, when you see that phrase, you'll be remembered that you ought to be processing whatever you're processing in light of Jesus. In light of the manna principle that, that God will provide for you today, one day at a time. You know, put it in your Bible or stick it on the mirror in your bathroom or wherever you'll see it, wherever you need to see it. So that you'll remember Jesus is with you every day, one day at a time. He is manna personified. That's what God was trying to teach his children in their journey out of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am with you. And you would hope that they would get it. But, you know, you get to chapter 17 of Exodus. They're still traveling. They haven't reached Mount Sinai yet. The people are thirsty again. They get thirsty a lot. Uh, They've seen God miraculously provide water and bread and meat for millions of people. And all uh, of this is done in the desert where none of this stuff is just readily available. You would think by now they would be trusting God and and really moving forward faith-filled and so and be willing just to wait on God. But in Exodus chapter 17, verse 3, we read that the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And actually, the key phrase of their complaint comes a few verses later, down in verse 7. They ask this question. They, They ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? That's their question. It's kind of always the question, isn't it? Is the Lord among us or not? Golly, after all God has done for them, these guys suck. You know, the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the deliverance from Pharaoh, giving them manna, giving them meat, uh, providing them with water. And they ask, is the Lord among us or not? Shame on them. Shame on us. Apparently, it didn't matter what God did for them yesterday. All that mattered was what he was doing or not doing for them in the moment, in the now. You know, was he meeting or providing for them their every need and want exactly when they wanted it? Was he making them happy the way they wanted to be made happy right there in the moment? Was he delivering them, you know, right now, right now, right now? And the really sad thing is, you know, I want to criticize these guys, (laughs) but I'm right there with them. You know, the way this kind of got me thinking, I thought, you know, I I really live so much in the moment of what I want God to do for me right now. I actually, I rarely take time to consider what he's already done for me. And yet you get that's what scripture is. It's always looking at what God did then and how he worked and learning that he still does those things now and is doing those things. But, you know, I rarely reflect back on what God has done for me in the past. His gracious provision for me over last week or month or year or years or decades. You know, I treat that stuff like it's eh, ancient history and doesn't matter or... I'm only concerned about the now. 
it amazes me. I, I, you know, this is why we have these stories. This is why we have scripture, the accounts of how God has worked in the past. They, they are here for us so that we understand, you know, once, once more and see once more in these stories that God is patient and that, that God provides even for grumbling kinds of people. I need that message. I need that reminder all the time. As, as we come into Exodus chapter 17, it's interesting, in the midst of their grumbling, they get attacked by the Amalekites. <laughs> it's almost like God's going to get their attention off the, their grumbling for the moment and give them a bigger problem, <laughs> which is the Amalekites are coming to kill them. And they can easily do that because remember, we've got a large number of slaves, not an organized military group. This is the first battle that we know of that they fought with the Amalekites. And the Amalekites mean business. They're coming to wipe these people out and probably take their, their women and children and, you know, put them into slavery. And so they have to get organized. They fight the Amalekites. And by God's grace, literally, in fact, it's supernatural too. We're supposed to understand that. This is the story where Aaron and her hold up Moses' hands, right? When his hands are up, they're winning. When his arms drop from fatigue or being tired, they lose. What is that about? I'll tell you what it's about since you asked. That is about making it clear to the Israelites that this all 100% depends on God, not how they fight. <laughs> because Moses' hands being lifted in the air is an act of worship. So, <laughs> again and again and again, the same message over and over. And so that God lets them defeat their enemies, the Amalekites, and, and God just patiently leads them to Mount Sinai. He doesn't leave uh, them for, or forsake them, which is also vaguely familiar. I think Jesus said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. The, parallel here's, the parallels here just jumps off the page. The big point that I, I want to leave us with today is just this. This whole manna principle thing, it's one day at a time. It's knowing that God will provide. How do we know that? Well, look at the history. Always look at the now in light of the then, you see. And be willing to trust God through your journey, wherever it's taking you, one day at a time. And remember, Jesus is manna personified. Jesus is with you. Every day he is with you. Every day he promises to provide. Every day he is sufficient for whatever you encounter. Now, next week we're going to get to Mount Sinai. And that's really interesting stuff to me. I look forward to talking about that with you. But uh, we're going to end this message. And I want to do it... Uh, the way we did a moment ago, I want you to stand with me and we're going to read a text together. This is a great text. It's just a, it's a word of admonition and encouragement around who Jesus is, our great high priest. It comes from the book of Hebrews. It's a great way, I think, to reflect on what we've just looked at in this story. So I want you to read this with me. You're, you're reading this, of course, to yourself, but you're also reading it to each other. So we're calling each other to believe these words together and to remember these things together. So let's, let's read like we mean it. I know you got masks on. I know how stupid that is and how troubling that is to some. Uh, but, you know, you can, you, can, you can read through a mask, I think, can't you? 
Okay, let's, let's read out loud together. Here we go. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can you believe it? Scripture calls us to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So that we will have what we need, receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, which is in the now, in the moment. What a God we serve. Pray with me. Father, we uh, thank you for stories such as these and the things that we learn from them and the truth that we discover about you and who you are and how you worked then and how you work now. And God, would you embed these things in our hearts and minds so that we can honor you and love you and obey you and follow you as we should. We thank you for Jesus who is the bread of life. Because of him and his death and his resurrection, we can call out to you, the great high priest, Jesus, and ask for grace and mercy in our time of need. And we can do that with the confidence that you hear us. You've told us to do it and to do it boldly. Thank you, God, for all of these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.